Hi, this is Marcy Stockman, and with me today in the sweltering heat is Gregory Wolf. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Greg, you said it's getting up to 110 where you are? This is a, a very unusual experience for those of us who've lived in the Pacific Northwest for many years, as I have. I'm not a native, but... Uh, yeah, it's uh, we're in a heat wave uh, under what they call a heat dome, and it feels like it's pressing down on us, you know, in a, in a land where there's very little air conditioning and normally where we don't need it. But uh, oh, wow. we'll we'll make it through. All right. Well, we, we'll keep moving here with this podcast as you as you sweat it out. Thank you for joining us. Tell, tell me a little bit about your background and your current work. Well, I'm I'm a word guy, a li literary writer and editor and publisher and teacher of, of literature and language. Just really one of the lucky people, I guess, who kind of almost knew from the beginning what I wanted to do. I always processed the world through language because I guess it, it came from both my parents. My father was more of an editorialist and writer on economics and politics and society, but he was very much a craftsman. He would be very disciplined at his typewriter writing every day. And I sort of imbibed that side of writing from him. My mom was much more artistic and literary. She took me to the art museums, but she also read out loud to me when I was a child. I remember, I think the first thing I remember her reading is uh, Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll which is full of all kinds of nonsense words, but but all this wonderful rhyme and rhythm and cadence and just a sense of what the beauty of language as music almost. And so I kind of melded both these things into my own sort of mature vocation. So I, I, I tend to write, like my father, nonfiction, essays of interpretation, literary criticism, reflection on really for me, the, the key topic is how art and faith interact historically, but also I'm very interested in what's going on right now in the present. And so this has led me to do everything from start a, a literary journal to teaching, launching a graduate program in creative writing. And my current gig is publishing books. I'm the publisher and editor of Slant, slantbooks.com. And so that's what I'm up to these days. Do you see a connection between a person's skill as a reader and their ability to embrace the faith? I do. I do. I mean... There's always a fundamental question of, you know, what's what's required, uh, what's necessary versus what's, you know, in a sense, a luxury. Do you need to be a literary reader to be saved <laughs> um, to get to heaven? No. Um, and I don't want to, I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the way that sometimes the arguments that I'm making can be taken by some people as a kind of elitism. And I don't really mean that at all. I think the fundamental act of reading is so essential to just who we are as human beings, regardless of whether we're reading War and Peace um, or the back of a cereal box, that um, that the act of reading itself is one that really, really uh, is in the backbone of our whole tradition. And certainly for those of who are interested in spirituality, you know, there's no way you can separate the whole idea of scripture 
and the, the, the idea that there's, there's a kind of continuous story being told uh, that's in sense ongoing and that reading carefully the traditional deposit of classics uh, educates us to reality. And uh, so if you, you know, are reading the New Testament, you're constantly running across Jesus quoting various books from, you know, the Old Testament, from from the prophets and from the Psalms and, and what have you, and showing that that act of interpretation, that act of careful reading and comparison of, of the text with life is fundamental to how we navigate our own day-to-day life, our own experience, that, um, that we read great texts, but that the texts, in a sense, read us um, in that they inhabit our life and they, they give us a sense of what's real and um, how to behave, how to act in the world. So yeah, I, I, I really do believe that it's not just a matter of snobbery. It's, it's just so ingrained into our whole cultural tradition that, that good readers are people who have virtues and skills and a human disposition that gives them an important place from which to engage the world. Right. I, I agree with you. Sometimes we have women who say, you know, I, I don't, I have this much time to read and I, I need to be reading my Bible or reading spiritual books. And yet you're publishing literature. We also read, try to read mostly works that have stood the test of time and also some new ones in our list, in our lineup. But can you speak to why literature and are these two competing or they don't necessarily have to be, right? It's okay I, to make room for literature. I think it is. I really do. And I, I would say that the distinction that people are making here is is not where the real line should be made. Obviously, we have to be prudent about our time and what we can do with it. But, you know, the Western tradition is incarnational. It is not dualistic. It is not either or. It is a strong tradition of nature and grace that grace works through nature. And we don't have to always erect these barriers between the sacred and the secular, that there's a kind of resonance between something as high and mighty as the Eucharist that is a, we experience in a church and a family meal, that there's a Eucharistic dimension, sacramental dimension, for example, to that simple act of eating together. And I think the same thing applies to reading, that when we read a great book, we're, we're participating in a similar process of, of engaging a world and discerning its meaning and helping through the work of the author to form better judgments of the world and become a better human being in the process. And I think that dichotomy between sacred and secular is one that we should be careful of because the danger is it becomes very brittle. It, it becomes a kind of pietism and it shuts our brain off. And the key is that we need to stay, keep our heart and our mind alive and open and not just repeating 
pious phrases, but really engaging with reality intensely. Greg, in your article, you write about the Bible being narrative storytelling. And you mentioned 43% of the Bible is narrative. Why do you think God used this method of storytelling to speak to us? I searched out the statistics for what different types of writing can be found in the Bible. And a lot of us very quickly and casually might think that the Bible is primarily filled with abstract statements, you know, thou shalt not do this, you should do this, don't, you know, don't, don't think this way, think this way. Abstract propositions about, you know, how to live, what's the right choices are, all those sorts of things. But in fact, and, and that you could call that discourse or propositional language. When you do the math, you're right. The, um, the Bible is, if you divide it into narrative, poetry, and discourse, 43% is narrative, that is storytelling. 20 some percent is poetry and only 20 some percent is this more abstract theological sorts of language. So yes, narrative is important. I, I'm throwing poetry in because both are creative. Yeah, why is this important? How do we process truth? How do we arrive at truth? Abstract ideas are, are valuable. They help us, they help us to communicate and connect on certain fundamental issues. Thank God for Plato and Aristotle. But most people process things more experientially. And this precisely, I think, is is a way of trying to acknowledge what is everyday experience for people who don't have time to do PhDs in philosophy. Well, story and, and lyric are how we process our experience. Stories are ways of framing the chaotic sequence of events in our life and finding a pattern in them, finding meaning in them. And that can't be done except through a sense of form. Good storytelling is formal. It has a beginning, a middle, and end. It uses metaphors and symbols and images. And that, that act of creativity on the part of the author helps to shape our sense of meaning. And really, it echoes the way God shapes the world. It, it's what Tolkien, the great writer of Christian fantasy of Middle-earth, called the sub-creation, that human beings are sub-creators under God, and we echo the divine creation by creating these forms that can hold meaning. It's Again, it's this old idea that form and content are absolutely kind of wedded together. You can't separate them. And um, you can't just look at literature or truth as some abstract thing you put in a bottle. And I put it in this end of the bottle and I shove it in the ocean and it floats over to you and I extract that out. That's too passive. The deeper tradition is the writer creates this beautifully fashioned work that requires me to interpret. I have to use my imagination to meet where the author is. And in doing so, my empathy, my compassion, my judgment are all shaped and, and deepened and formed as I learn how to engage with the way the writer has crafted the work. There's a certain type of sort of surrender to that work 
certain type of, you, you mentioned like building a bridge between the two, between the right and, and your own interpretation of it. There's a work to do. Yeah. The metaphor of the message in the bottle really is not helpful for understanding how literature works and, and great writing works. It's much more like a bridge and, and it's a collaborative act because the best writing is in fact, in a sense, you could almost call it incomplete. That is, the writer is very cleverly building their half of the bridge out towards you, the reader. And that includes not telling you everything. <laughs> what do they say in the writing schools? Show, don't tell, right? Because telling is just, again, this abstract, here's, you know, push the button, the candy bar drops down, and I pull it out of the machine. And that's, you know, there may be some cases where that is useful in life, but it's not very challenging. It's not very rewarding. And it doesn't really change people. What you really want is to engage the mystery of a creative work that has surprise and that can change who you are. And the way it does that, I think, is by your active participation. That is, reading is not passive. It's not like just getting a brain dump. I have to be evaluating. For example, is the person who tells this story a reliable narrator? Do I trust what they say? What is their perspective? What interests do they, what acts to grind do they have? Is the narrator being ironic? Are they, are they tipping me off to something without really saying it? How do I see the symbol that's used at the beginning of the story and then the middle and the end? How do I connect this, these times that this symbol emerges, how does that connect? All this act is an activity in my mind and heart. I like to use the, the idea of pride and prejudice because it's such a classic that we all love, right? And what is pride and prejudice? But Jane Austen saying, we all suffer from pride, which makes us prejudiced about what we think is true. And the, the story enacts that because even though we love Elizabeth Bennett and we're rooting for her and we, we side with her, we end up realizing that she has been prideful, that she's made some assumptions that aren't really sustained by the truth of, of the world and that she has something to learn. And in so doing, she has to revise her opinion. She has to change her opinion. And so we as readers going through this mimetically, as they would say in academia, like in imitation emotionally of following the story, we end up realizing we have to change our perspective. We have to give up our pride and surrender to this greater truth that's in front of me that's bigger than we thought it was. So, you know, that's just a, a way of thinking about what the right or the reading experience is. It's it's about revising and improving and deepening our ability to make judgments about the world. Yeah, and I, I have that in my experience all the time, doing that work to engage with an author. And at, I remember in our Well-Read Mom group, we were discussing a picture of Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray. And it's a, it's a dark book and it, it goes down a, a dark road, but a lot of the women maybe didn't care for it so much. And yet we learned more about ourselves and kind of the slippery slope of one step at a time, just going, going 
I, I don't know how to say it. All, all I know is that I went to confession the next morning and a couple of people from my group were there. So it, it worked on our heart, you know, the discussion of that book. So I, I do think doing that work together, discussing a book, having conversation about the experience and the work we've done on it can, can be transformative. Absolutely. And that's one reason why I'm such a fan of what you do, because reading is meant to be a communal act. It's not meant to, it, yes, it is experienced privately, but it only f blossoms fully when we share our responses to it. You mentioned a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I'd like you to unpack it for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. Can you help us with that? Yeah, it's a little paradoxical, but I think the insight is really deep. It's in a passage at the end of a, a beautiful book by Lewis called An Experiment in Criticism. And he's talking about this experience uh, that we've been talking about of losing oneself in a sense. Now, to be an individual is a privilege, as he says, because it's our identity, it's a unique gift. And that is one of the most precious things in the world. But at the same time, most of us recognize that my individual life identity is incomplete in itself. And that I only find the fullness of who I am when I'm engaged with another. I think what Lewis is saying in this passage is when we read great literature, we are able to do that in this beautiful, individual, private, intimate world of our mind and heart that's separate. But at the same time, the loneliness of that is in a sense healed by my connection with the author, with the writer, with the world in general through the writer, so that I experience coming from a Catholic background as I, I'm in favor of both and solutions to problems, not either or. That, that, that the church always kind of proposes this paradox that something can be more than it just itself, that we're individuals and we're connected together through this act, which, I mean, think about it. You can read a line from Homer's Odyssey that was written thousands of years ago, and you can feel the same heartache or laugh the same laugh that somebody thousands of miles away and thousands of years ago felt and experienced and help them to understand their humanity and the mystery of being alive in the world. I mean, that's a miracle. That is amazing. And I think that's really what Lewis is trying to convey through that passage. It is amazing. It's always uh, strikes me as extremely delightful when I read something that tells me something about myself that I wouldn't have articulated, but I recognize, no, that's exactly how it is. That is true. And, and then you recognize in your, 
you sort of think it's unique to you to feel this way. And then the, the writer articulates it and you're, you're just surprised that there's this connection in being human and it's pleasurable. It's also pleasurable to lose yourself in a book and, and actually like we talked about surrender to it because otherwise most of the time online we're, we're in control, you know, of the mouse and clicking and getting information and going here and going there. But with a book, this surrender, I think, is part of the experience of leisure in, in a true way. Can you speak about leisure a little bit with, with reading? No, I think you're absolutely right. It's fundamental. I mean, we live in a culture that is so utilitarian. So everything is about getting ahead, accomplishing uh, some goal, achieving something, so that the world becomes instrumentalized. Everything is, is used to get you further down the road to some goal as, as defined some kind of success or achievement or accomplishment in some way. Are you making enough money? Are you looking good enough? Are you living long enough? All these things tend to reduce life to this kind of instrumentalized, pragmatic. It's about use, using things, manipulating things. The danger of living like this is that you suffer from this, that sin of pride of becoming a, a sort of godlike or trying, believing maybe foolishly that you can control your life and control experience and control nature, control the world. But it's also why we're so stressed out, you know, because we're clutching to the world. We're, we're trying to make it do something and we're not open to the possibility of something existing for its own sake and not for my use and my control. And when something exists outside of my use and control, then it has the capacity to generate wonder in me and awe and openness and this state of willingness to change and to grow that the instrumentalized, utilitarian, pragmatic mentality really doesn't offer us. And so leisure in my sense, it, leisure is a way of recognizing the beauty of experiences that are not put in use for some goal, but are an end in themselves. And when I, when I do that, I'm able to be at home in the world. I'm not, I'm not grinding. I'm not, I'm not pushing. I'm not grasping. I'm opening and letting go. And I think we, we've really forgotten what true leisure is like. And this is one reason why I think people talk about beauty. You know, Dostoevsky once said, beauty will save the world. And I think what he meant by that wasn't look at pretty pictures and everything will be okay. No, I think he meant something much deeper. Beauty, in a sense, is that which is this sort of this ray of radiance, of something that attracts us, something that bespeaks a kind of mystery, which doesn't tell us what to do, which doesn't explain the world, but which pierces us, which, which sort of breaks our heart and then reheals it in a, in a mysterious way in the same 
kind of experience. And that that is a place that we don't often get to. And why I think, you know, I wish we had a better word than leisure because people just think of leisure suits, <laughs> you know, or not doing anything. But there are many beautiful ways of of experiencing leisure, including reading, that are that are far from just sitting around doing nothing. And I think you're absolutely right to hold on to that word, however problematic it is, and to to really challenge people to think about what it means and how they can incorporate it into their lives. Right. When I read a book and it really get into it, it takes a while because I, I always find I, I have trouble be, paying attention and I have to stop and start over and slow down and underline. and I have to work at it. But when I actually get into it, I do experience this. It seems to happen every time. Like, wow, this is relaxing. I find myself relaxing. And most of the time you're going so fast and there's so much to do. So to have this experience of relaxing, even when, when you're sitting there with this huge book like Crime and Punishment, and you're kind of wondering why you're reading it. Why, why am I in the mind of a you know, killer axe murder here for 600 pages? And yet there's a relaxation that happens, just surrendering to the story and after I read Crime and Punishment, I had such an experience in my own life of understanding this character, Raskolnikov, who wanted to keep stepping over his responsibility or the moral law that it didn't pertain to him. And then in the end, he comes to embrace, oh, he too has to to the law, the moral law, the order that's given in the world. And I just saw things in my own life, all of a sudden I closed the book and I understood, wow, I've been stepping over, facing a person that I need to go see and talk about and ask forgiveness. I've just been trying to step over, just like Raskolnikov did. Anyway, for me, there's an experience of relaxing and, and a pleasure in receiving. And then also this surprising connection with my own life. I would have never expected to get that connection from this crazy guy. <laughs> so it always surprises me how it impacts my life. Absolutely. And one of the things that people say is, I want to be uplifted by what I read or what I watch or what I encounter. And I get it. I get it. They're, they're tired. They're stressed out. But what that potentially misses is that what uplifts me is not just a funny, you know, a sitcom or a happy ending. What really uplifts me is that moment where I'm able to say, this is what the way the world is. And the writer has helped me to see that. And in encountering that, including the dark things, I am uplifted because I've I've moved from a superficial way of interacting with the world to a deeper, truer one. And I'm more in touch with the world and myself than I was before when I was using reading or screen watching as a distraction from the things that I need most in my life. And I'm not saying that great culture, art, films, books can't be fun and light and comic or or happy even, but 
the dividing line once again isn't just between that which is sentimentally going to work out in the end versus that which is involves unpleasantness because after all we know we have to grapple with unpleasantness we have to we have to accept the, the reality of evil and suffering and foolishness and pride we know that we'll never experience real hope or healing unless we find some compelling way of how of finding out how to encompass those darker things into some larger story some larger story that enables us to see meaning in them rather than meaninglessness. Uh, I would say people should really seek not just distraction, but that which opens them up to the truth of the world. Because in the end, that's what will really buck you up. It's the sense that you face something difficult about yourself, about the world in front of you, and you've come away with a deeper understanding that puts it into a context that enables you to to feel that you've grown and changed and um, moved forward in your in your life in some important way. Well, I agree. That's this is why there's such a sense of satisfaction when you finish a great book. You know, you realize I've done something hard. I experienced. I grew in understanding my own humanity. It's worth it. It's such an accomplishment. So absolutely. Greg, why do you think women read more than men? <laughs> okay, well, I I did broach this in my piece, and I uh, partly because look, it's overwhelmingly true. I, it's the thing everybody talks about. I'm a publisher, so what's the first thing people say about selling books is women read more than men. I realize I'm in dangerous territory here, especially these days. And that anything I say can and will be used against me. But I'm going to say, maybe naively, that it really comes from the virtues that women possess in abundance that men often lack. And I think that's a preference for the concrete. I think women want to think about relationships between human beings. And this is an old, an old, old subject of discussion with my wife that I want to dwell in abstract some kind of space where I'm benevolently you know presiding over my family the old paterfamilias but she's in the trenches she's the one who's talking to each of the kids and finding out what's going on in their lives and I have to recognize with a pang of you know admission that she's right that she has a gift, this earthier, more rooted desire to get down in in the dirt of daily experience, whereas I want to sail over it with my great ideas and mental structures. And I think great literature is always concrete. It is always earthy. It is always about human relationships. And in that sense, I think women are naturally attracted to the experience of reading and it's a tragedy, in my opinion, that, that, that men so often find reading difficult or off-putting or, frank, frankly, reduced to some utilitarian, like, I'll read, I'll read politics or economics, you know, to get some idea of what's going on in the elections and society, but, but I won't, precisely won't open myself up to this creative 
type of writing that doesn't have some immediate kind of practical goal. And so I hope I haven't said anything wrong or terrible or that I'll feel bad about, but I hope it's in genuine praise of a genuine truth about the world and one that I, that I envy. Right. And I do think that when women read and husbands, family members, uh, friends will hear about a book, they'll hear conversation or they'll see the book lying around and they might, they might just pick it up. That's happened a great deal in, in my family, just by having these books around. And I know now my husband's already reading the books for next year's Robert Mom, and I'm thinking, hey, where's my book? And that, that didn't used to be, it didn't used to be that way. So. Well, you know, that's, a, that's most of the great things in life we get in a sense, and I recognize this is a dangerous metaphor these days, but by contagion, like that is, when we we see somebody having a certain kind of experience and loving it, we're we're curious. We want to feel that way ourselves. So, in a positive way, books can be caught. Um, but yes, okay. I it's been a tough couple of years here, so I'll be careful with my metaphors. It has been a tough couple of years, but thank you for the work you're doing, Greg. Speak about. Uh, canceling the classics. Does that concern you? It does. It does for a number of different reasons. I I think lately one of my hobby horses has been the almost complete extinction of what I would call the historical sense. We really don't understand history. And that and that means that what we're likely to do is judge everything in the past by certain often superficial ideas of the present. I'm not saying it, it never happens that we discover a truth later in history that makes us question something that happened earlier in history. That That's definitely always a possibility in human life. We become sensitized to an injustice later, and then we look back and we see something that disturbs us. That's fine. That's a fundamental way of <laughs> seeking human progress in moral and, and civil life. What worries me more is when precisely the very existence of something less than perfect makes us draw a, an X across it to banish it, to take it away. Because when you do that, you literally have no anchor. You can't even go back. I mean, after a while, if that kind of mentality exists, this is, by the way, why Ray Bradbury wrote Fahrenheit 451. He wrote it about, he didn't write it about censorship per se. He wrote it about forgetting. And he was quoted as saying that multiple times, that people were misreading his book. It wasn't just about banning books. It was about forgetting books. But if you ban them, you forget them, and you lose the opportunity to do this kind of historical comparison. Because after all, what if you look back and, and read a book and don't just find that there's something bad in the past that, that nowadays we were better about? What if you find the opposite? What if you find something good in the past that we've lost and that is bad in the present? This kind of comparison, 
this is what historical consciousness is about. This is what great literature does. It's, it's always asking us to make these judgments, these compare and contrast. It doesn't mean you let things off the hook. You just excuse them. You know, you don't just say, oh, well, Mark Twain was relatively enlightened. So it's okay that he wrote about, you know, Huck Finn and Jim in this particular way. No, you can say, you can look at that from the perspective of the present and you can see something that was a kind of prejudice that is unfortunate. But can you read a book from the past and see a virtue, a kind, a, a compassion, a certain sensibility that is lacking in the present and that could illuminate the, the current time? This is again why the answer is both and, not either or. It's not either only the present or only the past. It is really this action of uh, communicating across time. And yes, you make judgments, but if you eliminate something because it's imperfect or even unpleasant, then you are lessening the actual input that you need as a human being to know what really is unpleasant, what really is unjust. And so you know, we need to be willing to allow this conversation across time to move in both directions. Yes, I think you're right. This both and um, not eliminating things that are imperfect, but also being able to make make judgments about them and, and grow from them. Well, Greg, this has been delightful. I love the work you're doing. And I'm I'm going to let you go here because I know you probably want to go turn a fan on somewhere because you've been <laughs> um, in, a, in a room without one in this heat. But thank you so much. And I hope that we work together again. And we want to put some of your books up from well, thank you. publishing on our bookshop. Well, you uh, know, somebody had to help those classic writers in their own time to to survive enough to, to write those classics. And when I realized that, I realized I want to try to help people create the new classics. So I hope that, you know, while I'm, I'm focusing on new books, I'm very much trying to serve this great tradition. Thank you for the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Did you like what you heard today? For more information about Well-Read Mom and joining a group near you, visit our website at wellreadmom.com. Well-read mom groups are forming now. We make it easy to grow in friendship by sharing great books and literature.